Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tale to Wauke specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello and welcome to this very special edition of the Physical Attraction Teot Wauke Specials. This is the second part of our first ever interview session with existential risk scholar Phil Torres. Phil Torres is an author, affiliate scholar at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He's a former contributor at the Future of Life Institute and founding director of the X Risks Institute. He's got a long list of publications, including two books, the first of which is The End, What Science and Religion Tell Us About the Apocalypse, and the second of which is due in October 2017, Morality, Foresight and Human Flourishing, An Introduction to Existential Risks, both of which can be obtained online on Amazon, all the usual places. And you can follow Phil on Twitter at Riskology, and you can find his website at www.risksandreligion.org. And this is the second part of our conversation, you probably heard the first part already. The second part focuses a little bit more on specific issues such as artificial intelligence. Um, and I hope you enjoy it. Again, it was a great conversation, and uh, those of you who've heard the first part were probably looking forward to this. So, here we go. The one thing I'd really like to talk about is um, artificial intelligence as an existential threat, because I think this is very misunderstood. Mm -hmm. You have public figures like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg at the moment. They're all going back and forth about AI as an existential and Whenever you see this, you'll always see the newspaper headline accompanied by a picture of a Terminator. And I think this is so unhelpful because, I mean, what they're doing is effectively missing the point of what this threat from artificial intelligence is. It's not the idea that there will be killer robots destroy us all or a computer intelligence that will be somehow evil or malevolent. Um, so I think it would be good if you could explain what precisely superintelligence is and what the threat from and uh, the sort of ethical people have had in dealing with it. Because I think of all the areas that threaten, uh, of all the existential risks, it's the one that's... Yeah, um, I, I'm a little embarrassed to acknowledge that I wrote an article about, about superintelligence. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that, that's... So I, don't, I have no control over the headlines. No control over the, the photos. Picture, and it was yeah. a picture of the Terminator. And I was, oh, I was so upset about it. Because I thought it was a good, yeah. well, I mean, I, I thought it was a good article, at least, but, sure but it, it was. was accompanied by, you know, I just can't share that among amongst friends and colleagues without a little bit of shame. I mean, thinking about myself, like not, you know, at some previous point, not understanding the issue associated with superintelligence, mm -hmm. I feel like the best way to explain it is there are two issues. One is it's perhaps an exaggeration to say that intelligence equals power. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not inaccurate to say that intelligence yields power. It's, you know, it's because of our intelligence. I mean, humanity, I feel like, is a, a stunning example of this. I mean, we're not stronger. We don't have sharper teeth. We can't run faster. We can't run faster. We can't really jump faster <laughs> than, you know, a lot of other creatures. And yet we are so powerful that we've probably affected the biosphere more than any other single organism in 2.3 billion years since cyanobacteria uh, induced the great oxygen, oxygenation event. So, I mean, it's it's because of our intelligence that we're able to manipulate and rearrange and modify the physical world in various ways. So in this sense, following this logic, superintelligence would be 
super powerful. So it's, so you're talking about a machine that, you know, basically its fingers and arms and tentacles, uh, constitute any, any machine within electronic reach. So it has this kind of like, you know, potentially huge control. And it's also just way smarter than us. So that being said, the question is, how do you control it? Mm-hmm. And this gets at the control problem, which has no known solution. It appears to be an, an extraordinarily difficult problem to solve. It involves things like, um, I mean, if it's, if it's helpful, I could go over just a, like a brief, I mean, there's six theses in particular that I would identify as, as components of the control thesis, uh, the control problem that make it so formidable. Please do. That would be fascinating. And if I don't understand, I'll be uh, just ready to interrupt. If that's oh, right. yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. Okay. So thesis number one is the orthogonality thesis. And this just, this just states a, uh, a corollary of the standard definition of intelligence, which is the capacity to acquire the means necessary to achieve some end. So in, independent of whatever that end is. So you, the, the idea then is that um, the, the axis of final goals you know, values what it is that the machine is motivated to do. And it's intelligence level are orthogonal to each other. So you can have basically any combination of final goals with levels of intelligence. It's not a contradiction to say that a super intelligence uh, is obsessed with playing tic-tac-toe or like all it cares about in the universe is calculating pi to the, you know, whatever digit. Or the most famous example is like manufacturing paper clips. Like that's, you know... And so this is the idea of an AI that manufactures paper clips and that because that's the thing it's been tasked to do, it, it no longer cares about any other possible goal because its goal is just to maximize. And if it has to wipe out, the convert everything into iron to do so, then it will do. Right. That. So that gets out the second thesis. Um, and and <laughs> I think the real lesson from the orthogonality thesis is to counter a naive view that, well, if we make a, a machine really, really smart, won't it understand like that some things are good in the world, some things are bad, won't it be nice to us? Like, doesn't that just follow from it being super smart? And the answer is no, it, it no. absolutely doesn't. Um, it, it could be entirely indifferent, it could have a goal uh, that is perhaps uh, malicious, but it's much more likely that it's just going to have a goal that is, you know, like manufacturing paperclips. So why would that be dangerous? And this gets at the... It's... There is no reason to expect it to have our value system, is the point, I guess. Right, so I, I'll get to that. Or, or any value system beyond just maximizing a certain function. Exactly, yeah. So I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. The, the, um, so the mm. instrumental convergence thesis just says that there's a huge range of final goals that all, in, in, in an effort to achieve these final goals, whatever they are, colonizing the universe, building paper clips, whatever, there are a, there's a finite small set of intermediate sub-goals that all of these, these agents with different final goals are going to converge on. So, for example, like mm-hmm. if I'm if I want to colonize the universe or I want to um, maximize the happiness of Americans or um, or I want to build pl- paper clips, it's going to be really useful for me to have lots of physical resources. So I'm going to go out and get as much resources as I want. It's going to be really useful for me to increase my own intelligence because the smarter I am, uh, the better I'm going to be able to figure out how to, to accomplish my goals. There, there's a range of other uh, of these intermediate sub goals called instrumental values that uh, you can you can it seems like we could accurately robustly predict some super intelligent machine is going to go for 
it will want to acquire more power regardless of what you set it to do. Better technology, better intelligence, more resources. Mm -hmm. So this is why the paperclip maximizer is a worry because if if the only goal you give it is to maximize the number of paperclips in the universe, it's going to say, okay, well, you're standing there. You're made out of atoms. Paperclips are made out of atoms. Um, I'm just going to mm -hmm. harvest the atoms from your body. So hope you don't yeah, mind. hope you don't mind. So in other words, like the instrumental convergence thesis says that even goals that even final goals that look totally benign to us could be catastrophically bad if those are the only. Mm -hmm. So we need to add some extra goals, some extra values, like don't kill humans. Some extra restrictions. Yeah. Yes. As Asimov's laws. Almost. Something like that. Although a lot of people have pointed out that Asimov's uh, three laws of robotics are kind of designed to fail, <laughs> you know, because that makes mm -hmm. a better plot <laughs> yes it's true i mean if, if if your best thought on this incredibly existential threat is a sci-fi writer however smart from the 1950s then you know you want to be concerned about a slightly more rigorous thing programmed into yeah. your system yeah exactly so i mean at this point like maybe listeners are like okay well you know um giving a super intelligent machine the goal of manufacturing paper clips sounds obviously pretty ridiculous um but you run into similar problems with other simple goals. Like if you tell it to, mm -hmm. to maximize human well-being, uh, I mean, Bostrom gives examples like that I think are drawn from Yudkowsky and various others. Uh, you know, yes. yeah, if you, t if you tell the machine to make people smile, then being a super intelligent, you know, problem solver, it's going to go, well, obviously I'm just going to plant, implant electrodes into the facial musculature of humans. <laughs> and then everybody will be smiling. You go, okay, you, not that. We don't, and, and then it says, okay, well, then <laughs> yeah. I'll just implant some electrodes in the pleasure centers of, your, centers of your brain, and you'll just be this blissed out zombie all the time, grin, like a grinning idiot. Uh, and yeah. then you say, okay, don't do that. And this process goes on over and over again, and you keep having to add more and more other constraints and other values. And this gets that additional things that you find unpleasant because it doesn't understand your value system to any human. It would be obvious that this is not the solution you were looking for, but not to a super intelligence. That is the, a perfect way of putting it. Yes. There's like values like increased human well-being. I mean, that seems obvious. It's a simple value. It seems obvious what it means. But actually, when you look closely, um, there's this huge network of complex interlinked values that are required for some naive agent to actually behave in a way that we would think is is commonsensical. Um, so that that's the that's the complexity of value thesis. <laughs> like, like, no, not to mention that even if you have something that has, say, the philosophy of utilitarianism uh, programmed into it, so you know we want you to maximize the greatest good for the greatest number of people, it still might do things that we would find uh, unacceptable. For example. Maybe it would make sense to kill a healthy individual, harvest their organs, and thereby save 10 mm -hmm. lives. But that is an ethical decision that a human would not take, I don't think. Um, so, you know, even if you have a decent realization of a philosophy that a lot of people would think you'd want to program into, make sure that humans are happy, it still may interpret that in ways that we find unacceptable. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it's there are just loads of problems when it comes to values mm -hmm. and not only is it is it the case that we're going to need that our values are highly complex somehow we're going to have to load these into a machine nobody really knows how to how to you know uh reduce 
happiness to some programming language. You know, it's much easier to program yeah. an AI to go out and manufacture paper clips than it is to attend to human happiness. <laughs> you know, it's a very abstract concept. As I'm sure a lot of humans will yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is, this itself is like a really, a really big, uh, really formidable philosophical and technical challenge. And making matters even worse, you have, you know, machines process information about a million times faster than human brains. So if you were, for example, if you were just to upload a human brain onto a computer and simulate it, and assuming certain philosophical theories are correct, you would have a conscious, you know, a being that is, uh, has a mind exactly in exactly the way that we have minds. Um, this mind would, would it's, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't process information a million times faster. Meaning that like a minute would equal a minute of, of, um, objective time would equal two years of subjective time for the AI. And mm -hmm. Because the machine is experiencing the world a million times slower than its brain is our brain. But yeah, faster. the world outside looks frozen. It's just, you know, like special relativity. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, another calculation I did is like, you know, it takes the average PhD student, I believe in the US, 8.2 years to, to get their degree. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be achieved by just at a human level uploaded mind in 4.3 seconds. <laughs> I wish that was the case for me. I've just started mine. <laughs> well, I know. Obviously, I would love to get, you know, I would, I would, <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to get a few PhDs, um, you know, in a couple yeah. months. You know, while you're waiting for your kettle to boil. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so there's a speed issue that, you know, you know, imagine humans are, uh, you know, w worried about some, some, you know, computer program that is, is acting suspicious, you know, in a matter of the time that it takes you to say, Hmm, something doesn't look right here. You know, the, the machine could have come up with a million and a half different ways of, of figuring out how to get you to not pull the plug. How to conceal its behavior. How to conceal its behavior. It, I mean, absolutely. It's entirely possible that the AI just figures out through uh, observation or experience how it best to trick humans. You know, humans are pretty gullible <laughs> in the first place. Oh, yes. Um, and so I think the very last the issue that's that's worth mentioning, I, I really think there, this is just the beginning of how complicated and and profound this problem is. But the very last issue is just mm -hmm. that one of the instrumental values that an AI is going to have is to increase its cognitive capacity. So if it's you know if you if you it's entirely possible that you produce a human level AI that has the final goal of manufacturing paper clips, mm -hmm. and it might actually forego initially manufacturing paper clips, pursuing its final goal in order to pursue the instrumental value of increasing its intelligence, because it might initially calculate as as any, you know, uh, reasonably thoughtful person would upon reflection, like, well, I'm actually going to get my goal. I'm going to achieve my goal much faster and perhaps much more efficiently if I'm just a little bit smarter. If I'm going to do this, it'd be better if I had access to that planet made of iron. Over yeah, there. exactly. Um, so, you know, so immediately if you get an AI that that turns inward and starts modifying its code in order to make it to amplify its general intelligence, then, you know, you could get a process called recursive self-improvement that initiates a positive feedback loop that results perhaps, you know, perhaps exponentially in a far, far more intelligent being. It's important to emphasize here that the the the. Uh, breadth of mind space could be huge. 
And we occupy one tiny little little dot in it. And we're all pretty much the same. We're all pretty much the same, you know, cognitive architecture and whatnot. But from the village idiot to from Einstein. The, exactly. As Jodkowsky like famously said, you know, that's sort of what we think about in terms of like, like a super, you know, Einstein and Chomsky and von Neumann, whoever are, 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 are like favorite person is. Yeah. yeah. More towards the super intelligent level whereas you know, the village idiot is, is uh, the opposite side. But, but that is a really parochial and anthropocentric kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. You've got it's to very think, narrow. Very narrow. You've got to think outside that there could be minds just radically different than ours. Um, and if you, and if an AI has the capacity for self improvement, you don't know exactly where it's gonna. You know, uh, there are a lot of AI systems right now that are totally opaque to us. We have no idea how it is that they come up with the calculations they they come up with. Um, so it, this is kind of the, I think, the central cluster, like the nucleus of the control problem that is why people like Musk and Bostrom and Hawking, and uh, and I would agree with them. Actually, I'd like to say that they agree with me, but the, the truth is <laughs> I, I agree with them. Um, uh, you know, believe this is like just a really, really formidable problem. Like probably, I mean, for more than, you know, for 2,500 years, humans smart humans have been talking about uh ethics and what the right <laughs> the right ethical theory is and we still i have no idea oh we, we're nowhere near figuring that one out that's for sure. and certainly not as it's implemented with creatures that have far more power than we do yeah we're just thinking about what's the right thing to do you know in your personal life as one individual with the knowledge that you're unlikely to so far outside of what we can of intelligence. Yeah. Imagine we have to solve the problem of getting the right ethical theory within the next 30 years. Yeah. Like that's just, that's crazy. I, it seems, it seems almost impossible to me. And people would never agree on it. I mean, that's one thing we certainly know, uh, the space of our minds. I think that was a really excellent because it does, it does frustrate me a little bit to see people saying, AI will do this and AI will do that. And they don't realize that what we're talking about is a range, all of which contain within them this control problem. But um, but aren't things like killer ro- refusing to obey you or the internet taking... If you nail it down to this idea, the fundamental question being, what happens once we have systems that can become more intelligent than us and can perhaps modify their own intelligence, the consequences of that rather than any specific Terminator type scenario because the more specific a scenario is sometimes the terminator thing is 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 such a a red herring and Mm. and a a distraction to sophisticated discussions of this issue um it's i i think to you know more and more i mean there's like a classic example of of uh humans demolishing ant colonies um Mm. but I i think it's illustrative i mean it's essentially that like human intelligence far exceeds intelligence and that again since intelligence yields power that enables us to manipulate the world in all sorts of ways we have constructed bulldozers that demolish forests so so you have this to- this huge asymmetry in terms of intelligence and power between the ant and the humans and then you have uh in addition a value misalignment where the ants want to build a colony and humans want to build a suburb and there's no there's no ill will between ants and humans <laughs> you know the, the intention was never to destroy all ants it was just a byproduct of the the thing that we were attempting to maximize yeah exactly so um yeah and the result of this you know all you have is is intelligence differential and misaligned values and that is all you need for there to be 
a catastrophic, genocidal, horrible consequences for the ants and their colonies. So all you have to do is map that onto the human situation with respect to some super intelligent machine. And the other thing worth emphasizing is, is nobody who worries about this issue is focused on timelines, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's ju- the, the idea of like that super intelligence could be catastrophically dangerous has nothing to do with when you think super intelligence is going to arrive. You know, it could be a mm-hmm. hundred years. It could be a thousand years. Um, in fact, some of the people like Nick Bostrom, they have, they anticipated arriving much later than the average AI expert. And well, also someone like Kurtzfile will say it will show up by 2040. I'd say he's probably an optimist in terms of, well, an optimist. He's probably one of these people who thinks it's earlier than it. But your point would surely be, regardless of how long we have, whether it's 20 years, 30 years, if we don't solve the control problem, it won't matter because it will still spell. Right. Yeah. You got to control it. You have to figure out how to control it. And that's true independent of when uh, it actually materializes uh, that being said th- i mean there was a one of the biggest studies to date found that uh, i think it was 75 percent of ai experts believe that the gist the gist is right <laughs> that you know 75 percent of experts believe that there's a 90 percent chance of human level ai by 2075 mm-hmm before the end of the century is a reasonable timescale for what a lot of people. Yes. So, I mean, that suggests, I mean, even a lot of the, these skeptics like uh, Jaron Lanier and others, when you ask them, do you think there will be human level AI by the end of the century? They go, oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, that's that's sufficient. That's overwhelmingly sufficient for being worried right now. Yes, about, about how, how we're going to solve this problem. How do we align the values? So, yeah, that that's the real issue. I, I'm really glad you're talking about it in this nuanced way or, you know, and encouraging people to talk about it in a nuanced way, because it is a big problem. And, and like I said, as, as you've said before, the Terminator issue is, is just not, that's not even close to being right. If I could bring in an analogy that I think people might, if you've ever been turned down for a job or something by an algorithm, or if you've ever had a computer that you've had to try and reason with that has, for some reason, in a kind of Kafkaesque way, uh, sorted you into a band of miscreants or something you'll understand that the motivations of algorithms are quite often quite impenetrable mm-hmm. and that's the sort of thing that we have to be concerned with it's not something that's malicious or even necessarily something that's being used by bad actors it's just something that we cannot effectively communicate with that doesn't understand our value yeah a- a- another analogy that I-, I think is helpful is you could imagine article by michael Shermer recently came out he said i, I don't think he actually asserted quite confidently that AI is not an existential threat. And he said, well, you know, it's, AI is going to need emotions in order for it to, to want to go out and destroy its, you know, the, the gatekeepers, um, its creators and humanity even more broadly. And that's just not true at all. I mean, the AI is, it's just an algorithm. It's just physics. It's just, you know, so the analogy is, that I think is helpful is, I mean, imagine like, you know, I live in Philadelphia city mm-hmm. and uh, usually just called Philadelphia. I don't know why I said city. <laughs> um, it's always sunny there. I've heard. It's often sunny. Yeah. Often <laughs> sunny as least would be more accurate. Um, you know, you could imagine like I, I have a bulldozer outside and I wedge the throttle forward with the shoe, you know, the, it has no emotion. It doesn't want to destroy anyone, but it just does what it's told um, mm-hmm. and goes out and, you know, destroys uh, cars and buildings and whatnot. And it's a similar fear with AI. So you give it 
all of this power, not just mechanical power, as in the case of the, of the bulldozer, but you give it this problem-solving power, and then all of a sudden it's going to go and do what it does and potentially leave a wake of, of destruction in its, you know, behind it, just like the, you know, uh, a bulldozer loose on the streets of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so, I think you're, you're the guy whose article you referred to, it's this... Um... Yudkowsky talks about it, the giant cheesecake fallacy, uh, where yes. people yeah. believe that, you know, of course, uh, an AI would be capable of making cheesecakes just as humans can make cheesecakes. And a super intelligent AI could make super brilliant cheesecakes. Therefore, a uh, super intelligent AI will make giant cheesecakes. You know, there's there's no point in un- trying to understand the rationale behind this kind of mind that doesn't yet exist. Because yeah. it is different in kind. It's like an optimization process. He compares it to natural selection, which I think is a really brilliant analogy. Because we as humans are the result of natural selection. And one thing we should always bear in mind is that natural selection has optimized us for one purpose. To reproduce and spread our genes and continue. Mm-hmm. It hasn't necessarily optimized us to be good morally. It hasn't optimized us to be happy in our individual personal. You know, it's not an optimization process that shares the same values as we do. The only thing that it values is the ability to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, you know, the cause of a great deal of human misery and suffering, I think, Um, because the optimization process determined our lives is misaligned with the value systems that we currently have. And things like society and morality and cooperation, they are sort of emergent phenomena that have in many ways allowed more of us to survive and so have prove beneficial for natural selection that we can cooperate for example mm-hmm. it, it is just one way that the, from an optimization an ai is another op- lead to all kinds of other emergent yeah i, I totally agree with you <laughs> i think i think that's well put <laughs> i think there's just one last thing i'd like to talk about if you still have time yeah sure okay so the one thing that i sort of want to bang the drum about i think is um we've already talked about the difficulties for human dealing with i think one thing that doesn't get enough press is inequality in the world as an i mean for a, for a piece of research i was doing i read that the uh the lowest infant mortality was two per thousand and the highest one mm-hmm. we know in so many different ways that inequality is a huge threat but as we start to get into the regimes where there's more biotechnology nanotechnology ai and other things accessible to, uh to what extent would you say that the inequality is going to be the thing that uh, destroys us because it gives rise to factors who now have this power. We have a... um, boy, it's a really good question. Um, a few things come to mind. So on the one hand, yes, the immense power could enable a select few, some elite group, to uh, unilaterally, you know, bring about some sort of catas- catastrophe. Uh, I know that even in in the context of geoengineering, as I as I you know better than I do. <laughs> um, there's you know talk of not just geoengineering the stratosphere uh, with with um, sulfate aerosols mm-hmm. uh, that's pretty cheap to do so I mean you could have a wealthy yeah. a single wealthy individual like you know uh, Richard Branson who's upset that, about all the hurricanes that are hitting his island and he says you know what I want to cool the oceans so I'm going to do that by cooling the surface temperatures and and release a bunch of uh, sulfuric acid i guess is uh, i think that's what it becomes that's right yes it's uh sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere that then quickly sulfur uh sulfuric acid you know i i certainly see that um more generally speaking my sense is that this gets at really this question gets at really important issues of systematicity 
and how there are different systems that are interlocked because I, I think a lot of like existential risk scholars focus on scenarios, on phenomena that would constitute a proximate cause mm-hmm. of, to, to uh, human annihilation or the permanent collapse of civilization. So, I mean, obvious things are like, you know, an engineered pandemic could mm-hmm. be a proximate cause or um, superintelligence takeover. And I think that there are these other, so I mean, I, like in, in my book, I call, I, I try to make a case for thinking about climate change and the six mass extinction of eight, uh, six mass extinction event as a context risk. So mm-hmm. th- these are, you know, the probability of a runaway greenhouse effect, which would destroy humanity seems to be low. Although as I, as I understand it, there's quite a bit of uncertainty there. Yes. We don't know for sure, but, you know, it, it's perhaps this imminent. Yeah. So I don't think climate change is going to just, is going to cause our extinction. Uh, but I do think that it has the capacity to modulate the probability of a whole range of other risks. Nuclear war. They're, they're literally terrorism scholars. And I've, I actually wrote a paper about this as well, um, who have linked the um, environmental instability and the consequences of climate change with the rise of terrorism, including the most dangerous form of terrorism, namely apocalyptic terrorism. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a really good case to make that climate change uh, directly influenced the rise of the Islamic State. So that's fascinating. It, and the Islamic State, of course, is like or arguably the biggest terrorist organization, the richest terrorist organization in all of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's an important point. Uh, some scholars, as well as I think it's John Brennan, the, the former U.S. government official, who have called climate change a threat multiplier, and I think that's exactly, exactly right. So, so, so I'm hugely worried about climate change and the sixth mass extinction event, primarily because, well, on the one hand, they're just going to cause a whole lot of misery in people's lives, yes. especially in poor countries. And it does disproportionately fall on these poor countries. It does. We're seeing that right now in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. right, with like Puerto Rico and, Absolutely. you know, kind of impoverished. It's it's morally atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, but even beyond that, uh, I think that these will essentially just make everything worse. I mean, good AI research is going to suffer in a world that's extremely unstable, politically, socially, and so on, because of mass migrations, extreme weather events, mega droughts, um, you know, biodiversity loss, food supply disruptions, things of this sort. So, but my ultimate point is I feel like income inequality is kind of in that category. Um, it's, it's just kind of a background issue that is, that sort of contextualizes all of these more immediate uh, phenomena that could have approximate causal effect on human survival. Uh, but it is a background issue. It, and I think the, the connections between income inequality, climate change, you know, biodiversity loss and so on, and things like the probability of nuclear war or mm-hmm. terrorist attacks and stuff needs to be studied more. Or instability in regions and governments that have access to nuclear weapons. Um, I think the other thing, if we're talking in terms of more optimistic aspects so far, like a, a techno-utopian, people are biologically improved, things like memories, uh, I think we talk about what Bostrom called a sort of flawed realization mm-hmm. of uh, a potential of that kind. And this to me is where inequality becomes a big issue as well, because there's this idea that 
let's say that immortality becomes possible, but it's only made it a, an elite that becomes sort of biological. Uh, I think it's this idea that if everyone feels that they have more of a stake in society, there's less chance. So I see what you mean in terms of it as a threat, more also in terms of having a utopia that maximizes happiness for lives of both rich and poor. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's another. We're seeing things now get to the, the gap is. Over. Yeah, if I remember correctly, um, at least as of like a year and a half ago or, or two years ago, maybe eight, the top, the richest 85 people in the world had the same wealth as the bottom 50 percent. Um, and I also saw a Guardian article just the other day that said that said world uh, hunger, I believe is what it was, has increased for the first time this century so far. And we can feed nine billion. There's seven and a half billion, and yet ten percent of the senator. Yeah. So I, I, to be clear, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, yeah. No. Of I course. Certainly no, don't I want to minimize, you know, that issue. Um, th- there's a sense in which, you know, like Steven Pinker argues that that the world is has gotten better over time, and violence has there's a there's a an appreciable statistical decline in the prevalence of all sorts of versions of violence from like rape, sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Uh, robbery and, and murder and so on. Um, so, I mean, that's good news, but there's also kind of another way to look at it. Not On the one hand, there's a, this rise of risk potential in the world, which is just totally unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, if you, if you, if you want to quantify uh, suffering in absolute terms, there's probably a pretty good case to make. There's never been more humans on the planet than there are today. We have a, arguably a higher capacity than animals to suffer. Um, so you could make a case that there's never been more. There's never been more suffering. Suffering ever in you know history, maybe uh, going back 3.8 billion years. More suffering means more opportunities to do good as well. Uh, that's true. Yes, <laughs> that's that's such a such a healthy way to look at it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's uh, probably the most well-adjusted thing I've said so far. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's. Uh... Um, it's better than the fetal position, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I think a, a big theme of our conversation has been that we should focus in this spirit of optimism on how we can address these risks. And the first step in addressing, the, educating yourself about what the risks are. So maybe we should just round off by pointing to some of the individuals that read about it. We've already mentioned the Centre for Your Own x and the... Um, okay. Are there any other people that you think it's worth talking about? Yeah, I, I would say, first of all, I, so my institute, I, I think, is is... Uh, going through a metamorphosis just a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, I'm sort of in the process of potentially rebranding it as the center, as a project for future human flourishing, which is mm-hmm. a bit broader. And, I, and th- the reason I want it to be broader is to pull more people in from all sorts of different fields, terrorism scholars, uh, you know, climatologists, and mm-hmm. so on, all of whom kind of share fundamentally similar views. Like, you know, we, we I, I want... They want civilization to survive, you know, the mm-hmm. next few decades, the next centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but so aside from that, I think um, Seth Baum runs the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. And that's also I think that and FHI, that FHI and CSER, the Center for the mm-hmm. Study of Central Risk, those are like probably the three big uh, engines for innovative work about these issues. So Seth Wong also and his colleagues have published some really, really good articles about existential risk and global catastrophic risks. Um, beyond that, there's like the Foundational Research Institute, mm-hmm. uh, which has a number of like, you know, pretty, pretty smart people who are, who have written some, some pretty insightful uh, 
articles. In fact, they're interesting because they aren't focused on existential risk. They're focused on what they call suffering risks or S risks mm-hmm. instead of X risks. I see, um, right. Yeah. So There's an alphabet of risk. Yeah, there, there really is. Um, sometimes I call agential risks A risks. You know, so there's there's just this proliferation of something dash risk, but uh, but yeah, they they focus on like well, it's kind of fascinating. I mean, their their view is like maybe it's better to work to make the future good than work to make sure we have a future, mm-hmm. and that's different than the existential risk perspective. So they have a more suffering focused uh, approach to these sort of big picture issues, and I would definitely recommend that there's some really high quality work coming out of uh, their institute and. There are various others. Uh, there, there's kind of a proliferation. A Future of Life Institute is another mm-hmm. fantastic one that ha- that's a- associated with like Stephen Hawking and and uh, um, Morgan Freeman is on mm-hmm. their scientific advisory boards and stuff. So wow. and and they do a lot of outreach, whereas some of the other institutes do a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, FLI is trying to reach out to the public and increase the visibility and understanding of these crucial issues. So I think those are the main ones. Yes, no, that sounds excellent. And uh, they've certainly got the best voiceover talent in the business. Um, (laughs) Yeah, totally. So uh, I think that's all we had to say. Phil, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was, was, uh, despite the subject matter, it was a real pleasure. Well, that was the second and final part of our interview with Phil Torres. Remember that you can follow him online at xriskology on Twitter or order one or both of his books from Amazon. Uh, I've got both of them on the way, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into them and finishing them. Remember, if you've enjoyed this episode of Physical Attraction, the best thing you can do is tell as many people as possible about it. And the second best thing you can do is leave us a rating or review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, we're very active and willing to engage with any listener questions and things like that, or even make a donation through the PayPal link. We'll be back next week with a return to our regularly programmed schedule. Until then, stay safe. You better make some preparations There's no time for hesitations Compile a list of tips Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics To get ready